Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. You can check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page in order to see the various aircraft described today. Today's episode is a request from a listener that came in a while back, and while I am happy to indulge any request that I get, I'm especially glad to profile this warbird, which seems to be the unsung hero out of a whole group of unsung heroes. Let me explain. When it comes to the amount of glory gathered by a particular warbird, the fighters definitely grab more than their share. Next come the heavy, medium, and light bombers, in that order. After that, whatever scraps of glory are left over have to be divvied up by everyone else. The cargo haulers, the gliders, the reconnaissance aircraft. Way back at the end of the line would be the reconnaissance seaplanes. It doesn't help that to the contemporary student of aviation, who might never have seen a seaplane in action, the seaplane itself might seem like an anachronism that is just hard to relate to. However, especially when it comes to their service in the anti-submarine role, the Sunderland should be appreciated. We should remember that Prime Minister Winston Churchill said that the U-boat peril was the only thing that ever really frightened him during the Second World War. Design and Development In the years between the wars, there was intense competition between several nations to establish airlines and air routes across the planet. This was deemed especially important in the UK, which wished to set up and maintain links to the far reaches of its distant empire. It was for this reason that Imperial Airways was set up to link the British Empire with service to South Africa, India, the Far East, Australia, Malaya, and Hong Kong. This pioneering company merged into the British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, in 1939 and eventually became British Airways in 1974. Here's a bit of trivia for you. The logo for Imperial Airways was a very stylized image of two birds, one red and one black, flying in formation. This was known as the Speedbird logo, and British Airways flights are still known by the Speedbird call sign today. In setting up an air service, you begin with a chicken and egg type problem. Do you begin by building the very expensive infrastructure of an airport with runways and terminals and hangars and the like when there is no established air traffic to the place? Of course, there is no established air traffic to the place because there's no airport to land at. A way around this problem, which for a sea power like the British Empire was very useful, was to use existing seaports to serve flying boats to create the air service. Once the service was tested and established, then the land facilities would follow eventually. It was for this purpose that in the early 30s, Imperial Airways challenged British manufacturers to build a fleet of 28 large flying boats for this purpose. Each of these monsters could weigh 18 tons, carry 24 passengers, and needed to have a range of 700 miles, which is 1,100 kilometers. At around the same time, the British Air Ministry published specification R2-1, 
1-33, which requested a next-generation, long-range, general-purpose flying boat for ocean reconnaissance work. It could be either a monoplane or a biplane, and had to perform at least equal to the short Sarafand flying boat. There were a variety of requirements, including that the new airplane was to be powered by no more than four engines and was to have a configuration that was more clean than the experimental Sarafand. The Short Brothers of Belfast, Northern Ireland, had built the S-14 Short Sarafand flying boat in 1932. What did the Sarafand look like? It actually looks like a Avro York, with an extra wing on top, and powered by six Rolls-Royce buzzard engines that were mounted in a tractor-pusher configuration in three nacelles between the wings. As said previously, it was an experimental aircraft, and the RAF operated it for four years, and then it was scrapped. On a side note, marketing-wise, buzzard seems a terrible name for an aircraft engine. I mean, you wouldn't call an aircraft engine a turkey, either. Speaking of birds the Short Brothers decided that they could kill two birds with one stone and get both contracts by building one basic design and developing both planes from it. I guess the better metaphor would be to build two birds with one blueprint, but this expression just doesn't have the same ring to it. They started work in October 1934 and settled on a shoulder-wing monoplane with four engines for both the civilian and military versions. They designated the civil plane the S-23 and the military one the S-25. Shorts had some competition for the military contract when Saunders Rowe announced that they were also building a flying boat, which was called the Saro A-33. Following submissions to the Air Ministry, funds were released to build prototypes from both the Saunders Rowe and Short aircraft. Once built, these would be used for testing and evaluation, and the winning design would be chosen. Let's fast forward two years, and Shorts was having great success with putting together their submission for the competition. So much so that the ministry placed 11 more orders before the competition actually started. In the end, Shorts won the competition by default when the Saunders Row Sol A-33 suffered a structural failure during taxi tests and was destroyed. Meanwhile, in July 1936, the first version of the civilian design, with the tail number GADHL and named Canopus, flew successfully. These were to be known as the Empire Flying Boats. Shorts ended up building 42 of them, and they operated all over the world, and even though they were built as civilians, some of them even ended up being drafted during World War II, and serving with the Royal Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and the Royal Canadian Air Force. It took a little longer for the prototype of the military version to be prepared, however, by October 1937, K-4774 was ready for her test flight, and a name had been chosen for the type, the Sunderland, which was a fitting name taken from the name of the port town of Sunderland in northeast England. Prototypes On the 16th of October, 1937, the prototype Sunderland took to the skies for the first time. 
It was using 950 horsepower Bristol Pegasus 10 radial engines because the planned 1,010 horsepower Bristol Pegasus 22 radial engines were just not ready yet. The design was declared essentially sound, although a few changes were requested before the aircraft would be accepted for operational use. The sweep back of the wing was adjusted in order to move the center of lift of the aircraft, and some other tinkering was done to improve the handling of the aircraft on the water. Finally, more armament was requested and the aircraft was to receive the aforementioned new and more powerful engines. Production Over 700 Sutherlands were built in total, organized into several marks. 75 Sutherland Mark I's were built. The majority of them were constructed at Shorts factories at Rochester and Belfast, Northern Ireland. However, 15 were built by Blackburn Aircraft. In August 1941, the Sunderland Mark II received Pegasus 18 engines, which featured two-speed superchargers, which generated 1,065 horsepower each. The four-gun rear turret was modified to carry double the amount of ammunition, with 1,000 rounds per gun, rather than the original 500. Some later model Mark IIs received an FN7 dorsal turret, with twin 303 machine guns added behind the wings. 42 of this Mark was built. The Mark III would be the definitive Sunderland, with almost 500 planes of this type being built. Like some people, warbirds tend to get fat during their operational lives, as new equipment and weapons are added, either at the factory or by field modification. This was happening to the Sunderland, and as a result, the plane was beginning to have difficulty unsticking from the water during its takeoff run. The Mark III received changes to its step in the hull to better allow release from the waves. The Mark III would also receive more guns, including two fixed guns that could be aimed and fired by the pilot, like a fighter plane during a strafing run. The type also received provisions for more ammunition, more bombs, and more depth charges. In 1942, the Air Ministry was thinking about service in the Pacific and began preparing for the eventual replacement of the Sunderland, and so published specification R8-42, which was basically requesting a new and improved Sutherland with a more powerful Bristol Hercules engine and more defensive weapons. Starting as the Mark IV, it would eventually have so many changes that it was decided to give it a new name, which was the S-45 Seaford. The Seaford's fuselage was longer, benefited from a stronger wing, larger tailplanes, and more hull form changes again. The Seaford had beefed up armament with 50 cal machine guns and a 20mm Hispano cannon. The Air Ministry ordered 30 Seafords, and eight of these were actually built, but they arrived on the scene too late to see combat. The weight creep that I mentioned before was the cause of the introduction of the Mark V Sunderland. With wartime Sunderlands putting on the pounds, with more and more weapons, ammo, and radar gear, the Pegasus engines had to be run at higher and higher power settings just to make do. These engines also could not be feathered, 
which was very problematic when you had an engine failure. Crews were burning out engines at an alarming rate, and eventually some Australian crews requested that the Pegasus engines be swapped out by the more powerful American Pratt & Whitney R1830 twin WASP engines. These new engines were also equipped with the new Hamilton hydromatic constant speed fully feathering propellers, which boosted performance and maintained existing range. A major improvement was that a Sunderland equipped with these twin WASPs could remain flying and get back to base if two engines happened to be knocked out on the same wing. Sunderlands with the old Pegasus engines in the same circumstances could not maintain altitude and would eventually end up landing in the drink. 155 Sunderlands were built in this configuration with the American engines, while a further 33 were converted from the earlier Mark III's. Operational History At the outbreak of the war in Europe, RAF Coastal Command was operating a total of 40 Sunderlands. They quickly began proving themselves on patrols, reconnaissance, and rescue missions. One Sunderland was dispatched to observe the Italian fleet at Taranto before the Royal Navy's Swordfish aircraft made their torpedo attack on the 11th of November 1940. Sunderlands were used to help in the evacuation of Crete, carrying up to 82 troops to safety at a time. Sunderlands have been credited for sinking or helping to sink 26 U-boats. These actions are notable, however, the vast number of Sunderland missions were long, tedious patrols on anti-submarine duty or keeping watch over convoys. Although unglamorous, these missions were critical to keeping supplies and troops moving and eventually securing the victory. When thinking about the Sunderland, the Warbirds fan has to make certain mental adjustments when conjuring up what it was like to operate, fly, and fight with this aircraft. It is actually better to think of the Sunderland as a boat that could fly rather than a plane that could land on the water. It was not an amphibian, and it did not have landing gear as the PBY Catalina did. The Sunderland's natural environment was on the water and it would usually be moored at a buoy when it was not in the air. It could be brought on shore by use of beaching gear that could be attached to either sides of the fuselage below the wing. This gear was a pair of two-wheeled struts, a two- or four-wheel trolley and a tow bar attached under the rear of the hull that would allow the Sunderland to taxi up a ramp and onto the land. However, most of the time, the Sunderland would stay in the water, and so the planes were supplied with a lot of equipment that would be completely foreign to land-based warbirds. Sunderlands had a demountable mooring mast that was positioned on the upper fuselage with a 360-degree white light to show that the aircraft was moored. The Sunderland had bilge pumps, an anchor, and a demountable bollard to tie to it at the front of the fuselage. The front turret was retracted for this purpose. To control the aircraft on the water, the pilot would use engine power, and the crew could deploy sea drogues that they would hang out the sides of the aircraft to help turn or maintain a course on the water. Even much maintenance was expected to be done on the water. 
The Sunderland had retractable panels on the leading edge of the wing beside the engines that would allow the mechanics to sit on to service the engines right there on the water. I do wonder how many tools and parts fell and went into the drink from this bobbing mechanics platform. The amount of accompanying cursing must have been glorious. Sea growth on the hull and rivets coming off due to saltwater corrosion was a problem that could not be resolved at sea and would need to be rectified when the ship was beached. Things were different inside the Sunderland too. Firstly, there was a lot of room inside, with two full decks. Down below, the lower deck had a sleeping area with six bunks, a galley with a kerosene stove, a flush toilet, the anchoring winch, even a small mechanics shop for performing in-flight repairs. The upper deck contained the cockpit and the bomb room. Being a boat, the Sunderland could not drop weapons from a standard bomb bay like a normal bombing airplane. Instead, bombs, depth charges, and mines would be stored in the bomb room where they would be loaded onto bomb racks that ran in and out of the bomb room on tracks to the underside of the wing. To load, weapons were hoisted up and secured to the rack and then run out through spring-loaded doors to their attack positions under the wings. It was really very ingenious. The weapons could then be dropped remotely by the pilot or by the guy in the bomb room. Even takeoffs were more complicated. The Sunderland could not land or take off if the sea was too rough, but it could also have trouble getting free of the water suction if the water was too calm and flat. In extreme cases, a small boat would have to be sent out in order to make a wake in front of the Sunderland struggling for takeoff to crack the suction of the water. The struggle for more engine power during the operational life of the Sunderland made its crews to name it the Pig. Supposedly, the Germans had another nickname for the airplane. They called it Fligentes Stachelschwein. Sorry for the pronunciation there, but this meant flying porcupine due to the defensive firepower that the Sunderland had. For although it was not meant as an air-to-air -air fighting machine, and it was mainly armed with 303 machine guns, it did have a lot of them all over, and so it could definitely defend itself and amazingly did take down an enemy aircraft, including some Junkers Ju-88s. It was undefended from below, as they couldn't put guns through the uh, hull. However, unlike most aircraft, by staying low, the Sunderland could protect its belly from attack, at least from airborne attackers. They could still take fire from a U-boat that decided to stay on the surface to fight it out. Although the Sunderland was slow and vulnerable, it was also very well constructed and could take a lot of punishment and still get home. It was unfortunate that the Sunderland just didn't have the range to close the mid-Atlantic gap. It just couldn't cover the entire breadth of the Atlantic. For that, the Allies would have to wait for the VLR, or Very Long Range Liberator. One last remarkable service that was performed by the Sunderland was during the Berlin airlift. Sunderlands flew from Finkenwerder, near Hamburg, to a landing site on the Havel River next to RAF base at Gatau. The Sunderlands anodized corrosion-resistant hulls 
were well suited to transporting salt into the besieged city of Berlin. Survivors Although Sunderland's continued to serve with the RAF until 1959, many of the wartime-built Sunderland's were no longer needed. Sadly, some brand-new but unwanted Sunderland's were towed out to sea and scuttled at the end of the war. Some others were converted to civilian use, with 16 seats and a promenade deck, or 24 seats, or sleeping berths for 16. These converted Sunderlands were called Hythes or Sandringhams. Amazingly, the last working Sandringham was retired in 1970 in Australia. Surviving Sunderlands can be seen at several locations, such as RAF Museum London at Hendon and the Imperial War Museum Duxford in Cambridgeshire. ML 814 is a Mark III Sunderland, which was converted to Mark V and then finally to passenger work as a Sandringham, and this can be seen at Kermit Week's Fantasy of Flight in Florida, United States of America. It had been operated by Ansett Flying Boat Services at Rose Bay, Sydney, Australia until the 1970s. It last flew in 1996. In conclusion, the Air Force Museum of Alberta's website states this about the Sunderland. Quote, while the battles it fought were not glorious ones, its presence above the waves forced the enemy U-boats to keep their distance from Allied convoys, thus allowing more war supplies to reach their destinations. They were also instrumental in saving the lives of many downed airmen and torpedo sailors who were then able to return to their units to fight another day." Close quotes. There are pictures of what has been described today on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. And if you like what you've just heard, give us a good review and share with your friends. Thanks.